Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through, and keeping their delicate skin happy and healthy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick, goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable as the diaper rash. Instead, try Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant, free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash. Use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel good about making the right choice. Nothing comes between you and your baby, not even diaper rash. Check out Dr. Mom Butt Balm, available on Amazon or walmart.com. Well, hello there, Dr. Nicole here. I am thrilled to share something incredible with you today. Imagine having a treasure trove of informative, entertaining, and empowering video content about the journey to parenthood right at your fingertips. That's exactly what you get with Informed Pregnancy Plus. For less than 25 cents a day, you'll gain access to a vast subscription library filled with documentary films, web series, mind and body fitness programs, workshops, and courses covering fertility to parenting and everything in between. A few of my favorite titles are The Business of Being Born, Empowered Mama, Belly Dance for Birth, Ease into Sleep, The Afterbirth Plan, and The Core Connection. And here's the best part. For a limited time, you can gain full access absolutely free. Just visit informedpregnancy.tv to sign up. Get Informed Pregnancy Plus right now for your informed and empowered parenting journey, all from the comfort of your home. Visit informedpregnancy.tv. Again, that's informedpregnancy.tv. Today, you are going to learn about what happens if a baby is breech. Welcome to the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast. I'm Dr. Nicole Calloway-Rankins, a board-certified OBGYN who's been in practice for nearly 15 years. I've had the privilege of helping over 1,000 babies into this world, and I'm here to help you be calm, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Quick note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Check out the full disclaimer at drnicolerankins.com forward slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is episode number 153. Thank you for being here with me today. So in today's episode, you're going to learn about what happens if your baby is breech. And I originally talked about this like three years ago, and it came to mind recently for me to revisit it because one, I personally did a surprise vaginal breech birth not that long ago. I talked about it on Instagram. And after that, I had folks saying, hey, I'm coming to see you with my breech baby so I can have a vaginal birth. And I was like, I would love to see you, but hold up. Vaginal breech birth is not that simple. And then the second thing that made me want to talk about this topic is one of the students or one of my students in the birth preparation course was kind of struggling with her baby being breached. And she was asking some questions that had me thinking and had me going to look up some stuff. So if you don't know, the birth preparation course is my online childbirth education class that gets you calm, confident, and empowered to have that most beautiful birth. And one of the benefits of the course is a private Facebook group where folks can ask questions. And I am all up in that group every day, responding to folks' questions and and, and comments about things, um, giving a little bit of a deeper insight into things beyond what you can get here on the podcast, often beyond what folks' doctors are telling them. So that's one of the many benefits of the birth preparation course. You can check it out at drnicolerankins.com forward slash enroll. Now, in this episode, you are going to learn about breach. And what you're going to learn is what exactly is breach presentation? How common is it? Spoiler alert, it's actually not very common. 
some risk factors for a baby being breached, the different types of breach presentation, how we suspect that a baby is breached, what are some of the options for management, how that's changed over time, some of the controversy surrounding management of breach birth, and then what happens after a breach birth. So we're going to get into all of that in the episode today. Now, a couple things before we get into the episode. One, let me do a listener shout out. This is from Caitlin C. Caitlin C. left me this review in Apple Podcast, and it says, incredibly informative and enjoyable. I cannot say enough good things about this podcast. If you haven't already checked it out, go listen now. Whether you are pregnant, a support person, or generally curious about aspects of pregnancy or birth, this podcast is for you. Dr. Rankins is extremely knowledgeable and presents the information in an empowering way. As a first-time mom, I was nervous and unaware about so much that happens during pregnancy. Luckily, a friend recommended this podcast to me when I was in my first trimester. I'm so thankful she did. Well, thank you, Caitlin, for that kind review and for taking the time to leave that for me in Apple Podcasts in particular. And thank you to your friend for recommending the podcast. Y'all know I love this podcast. This is my heart, soul, and passion. And I am so grateful and just love bringing information that helps folks be empowered during their birth. All right, let's get into this conversation about breech babies. Okay, so first thing we want to start off with is What is a breech baby? So quite simply, breech just means that the baby's butt or bottom is closer to the vagina than the head. That's it. So the butt, legs, the bottom part of the baby is the presenting part. So that is what's coming first through the cervix or to the vagina and not the head. And breech is a relatively common occurrence in early pregnancy when babies are really mobile, they have a relatively larger volume of amniotic fluid and they can move around and flip around a lot. So we will find when we look that roughly 20 to 25% of babies under 28 weeks are breech. That number decreases to between seven to 16% at 32 weeks. As the baby gets bigger, they just run out of room to, to keep turning. And then only three to 4% of babies are breech at term. So 37 weeks and beyond, only three to 4% of babies are breech. So it's actually not very common. Now, most babies that are breech are normal. However, breech presentation is associated with an increased risk of some congenital malformations, as well as some mild um, abnormalities, particularly torticollis, which is where the neck is kind of twisted and turned and also some developmental dysplasia issues of the hip, where the hip doesn't develop quite the right way, and that needs to be monitored after birth. Again, those things are rare though. Now, most of the time, breach presentation is random, but there are some things that are associated with it or that are some risk factors for it, and I'm just going to run through the list. So being preterm is a risk factor for being breached, and what I talked about earlier, because there's more space to move around. Interestingly, if you or your partner was born breech, then that increases the chances of you having a breech baby. So parents who themselves were delivered at term and breech are actually twice as likely to have a firstborn baby who is breech. Isn't that interesting? So we don't know that that Um, So we don't know a specific like gene or anything that's associated with it, but there's certainly some potential genetic component that's there. Some other things that increase the chances of breach are having a uterine abnormality. So the shape of the uterus is different. So for example, if you have fibroids that change the shape of the uterus and then the baby settles in a breech position, then it's hard for them to get out of that position If you have what's called a bicornuate uterus, uh, where the uterus kind of looks like a heart shape, then that can increase the chances of breach. If you have a septated uterus, meaning there's a tissue in the middle of the uterus, a septum, that can increase the chances of breach as well. Uh, the, The location of the placenta can increase the chances of breach presentation, particularly placenta previa. When the placenta overlies the cervix, 
If you've had a lot of babies before and your abdominal wall muscles are really loose and lax, then that can actually increase the chances of having a breech baby. Extremes of amniotic fluid. So if you have a lot of fluid, that's polyhydramnios, then there's a lot of room for the baby to move around and the baby can get to be in a breech presentation. On the other side, if you have low fluid, oligohydramnios, and the baby settles into a breech presentation, it's hard for them to get out of that position because there's not a room, not a lot of room for them to move around. Um, let's see what else. Actually, maternal hypothyroidism. So if you have low thyroid, that can increase your chances of having a breech baby. If there is a short umbilical cord, that increases the chances of having a breech baby. If there are concerns about the baby's growth, so fetal growth restriction, that can increase your chances. Uh, if you take anti-seizure medicine, that can increase your chances. Older maternal age and also first baby increase your chances of having a breech baby as well. Also, as with many things, if you've had it once before, you do have an increased chance of having a a breech baby again. That doesn't happen practically very often, but there is an increased risk. One study showed that after one pregnancy that was breech, then the next pregnancy, you had about a 9% chance of having a breech baby. If after two pregnancies, both babies were breached, then that goes up to 25%. And if you had three consecutive babies that were breached, then it's about 40%. So your babies are probably just going to likely be breached. Did you know that 95% of pregnant women are not getting their recommended daily intake of key omega-3s? Enter Ritual. Their prenatal contains 350 milligrams of eco-friendly vegan omega-3 DHA in every serving. One of the reasons I like Ritual is that it's a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable to not just their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. In addition to those omega-3 DHAs to support baby's brain development, Ritual also has choline and methylated folate to support baby's neural tube development. And the capsules feature a delayed release design to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. Why settle for a multivitamin you're not 100% sure about? Ritual was literally built on trust, so you know it's the real deal. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com forward slash Dr. Nicole. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women Prenatal to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash Dr. Nicole for 25% off. All right, so let's get into the different types of breach presentation. And there are three different types. And I'm also going to explain to you why the types of breach presentation matter. So one is complete breach. And that is when both the hips are flexed and the knees are flexed. And that just means bent. So the hips are bent and the knee is bent. It looks like a cannonball. So like cannonball shape, if you were like jumping into the pool, you know, you grab your knees and jump in. That is a complete breach presentation. That happens in about five to 10% of pregnancies, not very common. The next most common is incomplete breach when one or both of the hips are not completely flexed, okay? So that means that it may be a footling breach where one foot is going through, so one foot is straight, and maybe both feet going through where both feet are straight. So that is an incomplete breach. Rarely, it could be both knees, actually. I've never seen that happen, but that's a possibility as well. So incomplete breach happens roughly 10 to 40% of the time. And then the most common breach presentation is frank breach. And that is when both hips are flexed. So the hips are flexed, but the knees are extended. So the feet are up by the baby's head. And that is when you see there are tons of videos, you see babies online and their little feet are flopped up like smack up by their head, straight up. And that is that is frank be- breach. <laughs> when they are like that in utero, they come out and they stay like that. So <laughs> that's frank breach when the hip is flexed and the knees and the knee is extended and the feet are up by the head. And the reason that the type of breach presentation 
matters is because depending on the presentation, it increases the chances for problems. So particularly with the incomplete breach presentation. So if you have feet presenting and not like the, the, the butt really presenting, what can happen is that the feet can come out, the trunk can come out of the baby, but the shoulders and the head can get stuck. So the feet, the trunk could fit through a cervix that's not completely dilated. And then the shoulders and the head could potentially get stuck. That increases the risk of the umbilical cord being cut off and something called um, head entrapment. That is every obstetrician's, one of our worst nightmares to have that happen. So with incomplete breach, that is a risk. Also with incomplete breach, there's a higher risk of what's called umbilical cord prolapse, where if a foot is coming through and there's space on the side for the umbilical cord to drop through, that is also a true, true obstetric emergency because it can cut off blood supply to the cord, through the cord and and hence to the baby and lead to fetal death. So that requires a stat like run to the room C-section. So that's why we get concerned, particularly about incomplete breach, that head entrapment scenario, which is a disaster, and then umbilical cord prolapse, which is also an emergency and requires emergency cesarean birth. That doesn't happen quite as much with frank breach or complete breach because the, the butt is like sitting down nice and solid on the cervix. So those things are less likely to happen. And also, um, if the if the butt is coming through with the legs kind of next to it, that's a nice wide surface, wide surface, and it's about the same size as the head, so it's not like a whole lot smaller. So we know that if that butt and the legs fit through like that, where the legs are bent up, then we almost always the head is going to come through as well. It's not going to get stuck. All right. So how do you know if your baby is breech? One thing is that you may feel discomfort underneath your ribs from the head. You feel something solid up there. Just feel like, oh my goodness, what is that? Something is up there. Something's up there. So just discomfort under the ribs from the head. If the baby is incomplete breech, then you may feel kicking in the lower part of your belly. So you feel the kicks lower and not higher. Okay. We may pick up the baby's heart rate higher. The heart is closer to the head. So if we're picking up the heart rate higher in the belly, then it may be the head is up there too. On vaginal exam, we can have a suspicion of it if your baby, if your cervix rather is dilated because it just feels different. Like it's the head feels firm, a butt or something other than the head feels squishy. And it's like, that does not, that does not feel right. So um, you can tell if the cervix is dilated at least a couple centimeters and you can feel the head. You have a suspicion on, on vaginal exam. If the cervix is completely closed, it's actually pretty hard to tell if a baby is breech. You may have a suspicion because you don't feel anything, like you don't feel a head down there like like you're expecting to feel, so then you may check. But if the cervix is closed, it can be challenging to tell. We definitively diagnose breach presentation by ultrasound. It's very easy to diagnose. You plop the ultrasound on, a baby's head looks like the bones of the skull light up a certain way in a circle. It's very easy to tell by ultrasound whether or not a baby is breech. So what do we do? What are the options for what can happen when a baby is breached? Now I'm going to talk about options for term babies. So full-term babies, 37 weeks or more. For preterm babies, we almost always do cesarean unless they're really, really preterm because the head is the largest part in preterm babies and that has a higher risk of getting stuck. So unless the baby's really, really tiny, like around 23, 24 weeks, typically for preterm babies, we're going to do cesarean for breach. So I'm talking about the options for term babies. So the first one is something called external cephalic version. An external cephalic version is basically just turning the baby. So we, from the outside, we try to turn the baby to head down position. It's typically done around 37 weeks. There is some data that shows that doing it a bit earlier, like between 34 to 36 weeks does have a higher success rate, but we do have to weigh it against the possibility that if there's a complication, if something happens during the procedure, 
and we have to do an emergency cesarean, then we're bringing a preterm baby into the world. So typically we do it around 37 weeks full term. As far as the success rate, I wish I could tell you better numbers about the success rate. It's not terrible, but it's not like fantastic either. So in 2018, one study looked at uh, a review of about 13,000 attempts and the overall success rate from that systematic review was 58%. So better than a 50-50 shot, which I think is good. You know, you'd like it to be higher, but definitely better than a 50-50 shot. And then another series of about 2,600 attempts um, showed a success rate of 49%. And in that study, the success rate was 40% for patients who were having their first baby. It was 64% for patients who were having, you know, who had had a baby before. So not great numbers, but again, like at least about a 50-50 shot of it working, a higher chance if you've had a baby before. Now of note, if the version was successful, 97% of babies in that second study stayed head down, okay? And then of those, 86% of those delivered vaginally. So if it works and there's a good chance that it is going to, baby's going to stay in the right position and then you'll go in to have a vaginal birth. So certainly worth a shot. Now, some things that make it less likely to be successful are if it's your first baby, if the placenta is anterior, anterior placenta means the placenta has just settled in the front wall of the uterus. You don't have any control over the, where the placenta settles in your uterus. It settles where it settles. So if it settles on the front portion of your uterus, then it's just a little bit harder to feel the baby to get the right, um, to get our hands in the right spot to turn the baby. Uh, low amniotic fluid is going to decrease the chances of success. And as I said before, that's because there's just less room for the baby to turn. If the baby has already descended into your pelvis, if the baby is really low, that's harder because with the version, we literally have to push up the bottom part of the the baby and then rotate it. If the baby is down in the pelvis, it's, it's a little bit harder to do that. If you carry extra weight, so obesity will decrease the chances. And really that's just because it's just more difficult to feel where the baby is, to know where to turn. If you have super firm um, abdominal muscles, that is going to make it more difficult for the baby to turn. A frank breach presentation makes it more difficult to turn. As you might imagine, it's kind of hard to turn a baby whose legs are kind of straight out like that. So that is going to make it more difficult to turn. If the baby is persistently breached, like every time we look, that baby is breached, it has never been head down, then that is going to decrease the chances of success. Actually, that's a pretty good prediction. If they're, they're breach every single time we look, the baby is probably going to stay breach. Um, if the water is broken, then that will decrease the chances of success because again, not as much space to move the baby around. Now, on the flip side, things that enhance the chances of success, and really a lot of it is just the opposite of some of the things that I talked about. So if you have a posterior placenta, meaning the placenta is on the back wall of your uterus, that will increase your chances of success. If your amniotic fluid level is higher, that will increase the chances of success, as will a fetal part, so the butt that is not engaged in the pelvis. So an unengaged fetal part will help because we don't have to like push up so high to try to move the baby to turn. Interestingly, black race increases your chances of having a successful uh, external cephalic version, as does what's called an oblique or transverse lie. So what that means is the baby is not quite where the head is underneath your ribs it's just not straight down. So either the baby is going across your belly. So you just don't have as much of um, space that you need to turn the baby in that case or oblique where it's like between 
45 and 90 degrees off one side to the other. So instead of straight down, and I wish y'all could see me, I'm like doing motion sitting at my desk (laughs) of the baby. But instead of the head being straight down, it's like off to the side a bit one way or the other. So there's more, a higher chance of a success with those positions because it's just less that we have to turn. Now, some other things that can increase success are something called tocolysis, which is basically just relaxing the uterus. And typically we give a medicine that's called a beta stimulant. In the US, we use something called terbutaline. And literally it just helps to relax the uterus. So when you relax those muscles, then it can help with having the ability to turn the baby. The other thing that can help is what's called neuraxial anesthesia. So that's an epidural or spinal medication. Studies show that that will increase the risk. I'm sorry, increase the chances of success. Um, Typically, or a lot of times, people don't use any sort of anesthesia for um, external cephalic version. And I think that's kind of how I was trained to do it. But studies show that it can help. In one study in 2016, having a spinal, typically we're going to do a spinal because it can do a one-shot deal of medication. You don't need an epidural to give continuous medication. So it'll be a one-shot deal of medication. And having that spinal increases the increase the chance of success in this 2016 study um, from 43% for those who didn't have it to 58%. So that's a pretty big increase. And also increase the rate of baby being head down in labor from 40% to 55%. Vaginal birth increased from 44% to 54%. And the cesarean birth rate was lower. So it was 46% versus 55 when folks had that, that spinal. That is one of those things I think if your doctor is talking about doing a version that you ask for it because it can help. Not everybody's going to do it. So you can ask for um, having a spinal. You can ask for what's called tocolysis or medicine to help relax your uterus because those two things will actually increase your chances for success. And then as you might expect also experience will enhance success. In one study in the Netherlands, having a dedicated team who only did external cephalic version or ECV, that increases success rate from 40 to 70%. So just having practice and doing it more frequently increased the chances of success. Now, one thing I didn't realize before I went back to update this episode is that vibroacoustic stimulation can actually help improve the chances of a successful version. Um, And it's a one small study. It was only like 20 something patients, but it's, it's a little handheld device that we use sometimes to help stimulate a baby. Like if we want to see the heart rate jump up or the heart rate is not looking great. So it's a little handheld device and it sort of sends a stimulant of sound and motion to the baby. And that's a pretty inexpensive, like well-tolerated, harmless approach to try. And it definitely did reduce the the failure rate. So that is something that I'm going to actually try to um, incorporate because I've never done it before. The next time I do a version to see if that helps. Now, the procedure is not without risk. Everything has risk, but the overall risks are low. So in one study in 2008, in a systematic review, when they looked at ECVs done after 34 weeks, this was a lot of patients included in the data, almost 13,000. Serious events were very rare. So the overall complication rate was 6.1%. That included stillbirth, placenta abruption, emergency cesarean birth, cord prolapse, some transient changes in the heart rate, vaginal bleeding, water breaking, all of those together, 6.1% happen. Serious complications, which were like stillbirth or abruption, that only happened in 0.24%, so 23 cases out of nearly 13,000. 
the risk for um, the baby dying after it was born, so fetal death, was 0.19%. And actually only two of the 12 deaths were attributed to the procedure itself. And the risk of placenta abruption, where there are issues with the placenta, was 0.18%. So one out of every 1,200 ECVs, Amerian's, uh, Amerian, emergency cesarean birth was performed in um, only 49 cases, so 0.35%. So all of those complications are low, all right? The risks are very, very low. So as for the procedure itself, what happens is you come into labor and delivery, you're put in a room, uh, you don't eat beforehand just because of the potential for emergency cesarean birth if need be. It can be one or two doctors who are doing it. Typically it's two, I think it's easier with two. But one or two doctors, we watch closely with ultrasound during the procedure, uh, make sure the baby's heart rate stays okay. Usually we tend to like slather your belly with jelly or gel, not jelly, gel, (laughs) so that we can move the baby around. And it can be painful. I'm not going to lie. It can be very uncomfortable um, for for many people, which is also another reason to do that, that spinal anesthetic, anesthetic to help reduce the pain as well. So it can be uncomfortable. And really, it doesn't take long. We typically try like two or three times. The whole thing may take 10 minutes to try all of all of the time. So it really doesn't take long. And we literally are physically just trying to turn that baby around. Now, there are a couple of sort of special situations or circumstances with external cephalobversion. Typically, we schedule it. Uh, at 37 weeks, but it can also be done once you go into labor. So if you come in in labor and your baby is breech, if the baby is not down in your pelvis, if your water hasn't broken, if you have normal amniotic fluid, then it is certainly reasonable to try during that early part of labor to turn the baby right then, okay? Okay. And the advantages of delaying it until labor begins is that you do give that maximum amount of time for spontaneous version to happen. I'll talk about how frequently that happens in just a minute. And then also if the baby turns and you're already in labor, then, you know, you just go ahead and have the baby right then. Now the disadvantages of doing it that way, the disadvantage of, of doing it in an unplanned way and just waiting until you go into labor is that if you go into labor and the baby is already in the pelvis, that's going to make it harder. If your water breaks, that's going to make it harder. So those are the disadvantages, but it can be done if you present in labor and you're in the early part of labor and attempt to turn the baby can't happen then. The other sp- special circumstance is the situation where the baby isn't like all the way breech, meaning that the head isn't up under the ribs. The baby is in what's called a non-longitudinal lie, so transverse, meaning across or oblique, just slightly off center either side. Sometimes we delay those until closer to 39 weeks because those babies have a high chance of flipping back to transverse. So what we'll do is do the version at 39 weeks, put like an abdominal binder on, and then go ahead and induce labor right then just because they have a high chance of going back to that that transverse or oblique position. Now, if the initial attempt at ECV is unsuccessful, we can certainly try again in a couple of days, all right? So it is certainly reasonable if you want to, to try again, but typically we don't try more than twice. And then the other option, if it is unsuccessful, is just to wait, okay? Um, Roughly anywhere between four and 6% of babies will spontaneously go to a head down position after a failed external cephalic version. So it's not terribly high chances, but it ain't zero. So if you want to wait until you go into labor before you have a cesarean, then that is certainly reasonable as well. Hey, so you made it this far in the episode and I'm thinking it's because you enjoyed this podcast. Well, if that's the case, then I have a favor to ask. 
Creating and producing the All About Pregnancy into Birth podcast has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I'm so grateful to have each and every one of you on this journey with me. Your support and engagement means the world to me, and it's what helps keep this podcast going. But here's the thing. Producing a podcast involves time, effort, and resources from recording equipment to an editor, hosting fees, coordinating guests, countless hours spent researching and crafting content. It all adds up. And that's where I could use your support. I've never wanted to turn all about pregnancy and birth into a paywall. I want it to remain accessible to everyone. That's why I've set up a way for you to support the show financially if you're able and willing. If this podcast has helped you during your pregnancy, your birth, or your life, I'm asking you to consider contributing to the show. Your support will help cover production and team costs and ensure that I can continue delivering the episodes you love. So in the month of March, head to drnicolerankins.com forward slash support and contribute whatever you can. Your support, no matter how big or small, makes a significant impact. It helps us continue delivering high quality content and ensures the future of all about pregnancy and birth. Again, that's drnicolerankins.com forward slash support. Thank you so much for being part of the All About Pregnancy and Birth community. Now back to the show. Okay, so what does ACOG say about external cephalic version? And ACOG is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It is our governing body who sort of makes recommendations about treatment management decisions. And their stance is because the risk of an adverse event occurring as a result of ECV is small and the cesarean birth rate is significantly lower among women who have undergone successful ECV. All women who are near term with breach presentations should be offered an ECV attempt if there are no contraindications. Now, I will say that in practice, not all people are offered this option. So if your baby is breached, then definitely bring up the possibility of ECV if this is something that you want to do. Now, so that is one option, external cephalic version. The other option, which quite frankly happens most of the time for cesarean birth, and I'll talk about why, is planned cesarean delivery. And that can either be done without an attempt at aversion or after a failed version attempt. Now we don't schedule the C-section any earlier than 39 weeks. And that's because 39 weeks is kind of the golden number that we know from our data where babies are ready to be born. The risk of complications is low every day up until 39 weeks counts. So we don't intervene before 39 weeks unless there's a reason to. And then why scheduling it versus waiting until you go into labor in order to have a cesarean. So there are some slight risks associated with delaying cesarean. Um, if the baby is in an incomplete breech presentation, then that's going to increase the risk of core pro- prolapse, like I talked about, like the umbilical cord coming through. If the labor goes really fast and the baby's in that incomplete breech presentation, it can increase the risk of head entrapment. If that happens, that's not likely to happen. There's also an increased risk of infection if cesarean is done after you're in labor versus like a scheduled cesarean. But again, that risk is not high. And as I said, spontaneous version, meaning baby just turns on on their own, can occur at any time before delivery, even after 40 weeks, actually, in one study where they did ultrasound exams, uh, spontaneous version, baby turn on its own after 36 weeks actually happened in 25% of cases. So that is a pretty decent chance that a baby could turn on its own. Now, some characteristics that lowered the likelihood of spontaneous version were extended fetal legs. So if the baby's in that frank breech position, it's going to be harder for them to turn. If there's low fluid or a short umbilical cord, if you have uterine abnormalities like fibroids, that's going to make the baby less likely to turn or if it's your first baby. So I say all that to say that it doesn't have to be a scheduled cesarean at 39 weeks. If you want to, based on your own unique circumstances, if you want to wait until you go into labor and then even try the version then, or 
um, you know, check right before you have a cesarean to make sure that the baby hasn't turned and then have the cesarean if the baby hasn't turned, then that is perfectly reasonable. I definitely recommend because the, the chances of babies turning is, you know, like I said, spontaneously is, is, is 25%. And even after a failed version, they can still turn. Definitely have the doctor put an ultrasound on and look where the baby's head is before the cesarean. So you know 100% that the baby is breached before you have a cesarean for breach. Okay. There have been stories of, oh, we're doing a C-section for breach and baby is not breached. So definitely check just before you go back. So how do we get to this point where most babies are, breech babies rather, are born by cesarean? Really that came from something called the term breech trial. This was a study done in 2000. This was right before I did my residency. I did my residency in 2002. And the term breech trial is a randomized trial. So that's the strongest level of evidence that we have available, meaning people were randomly assigned to having a planned cesarean birth or a planned vaginal birth. It happened in 26 countries, 2,000 women with one baby in a frank breach or complete breach presentation. And what the results of that study showed are that perinatal mortality, neonatal mortality, or serious neonatal morbidity were lower in the planned cesarean group compared to the planned vaginal birth group. So in the planned cesarean birth group, the risk of all those things was 1.6%, whereas it was 5% in the planned vaginal birth group. There were no differences for mom in terms of maternal mortality or serious maternal morbidity. So really all of the benefits were for babies for planned cesarean birth when they're in the breech position. And over time, this study was reanalyzed again, and they they uh, followed people out longer. And although there were those short-term differences, there were no long-term effects noted for children or moms at two years. This study completely changed the way that obstetrics was practiced, and it has led to the fact that well over 90% of breech babies are born via cesarean section today. Well over 90%. I'd say closer to 95, even 99% of singleton breech babies are are delivered by C-section. And the data from this study has been supported by additional studies. There was a Cochrane review. Cochrane does um, big reviews of studies in a really systematic way. So in 2015, there was a Cochrane review that looked at planned cesarean for term breech delivery. And compared with planned vaginal birth, planned cesarean did reduce perinatal and neonatal death. Um, And it it wasn't by uh, a ton, but it did reduce it. And particularly short-term outcomes were reduced for babies. Perinatal, Perinatal, neonatal death and serious neonatal morbidity. So in the... um, in the vaginal birth group, the risk of those things happening was 57 in 1,000. When you look at that, that's still a low number, but it was four versus 1,000 in the planned cesarean birth group. So in general, the conclusion is that planned cesarean compared with planned vaginal birth reduces perinatal and neonatal death and reduces um, any serious neonatal problems. In that Cochrane review, they did find a tiny increase in maternal morbidity, but that was mostly in low resource setting countries, okay? So that is why most breech babies are born via cesarean because of the data that has showed that it reduces poor outcomes for babies, all right? Now, the overall risk of bad things happening in either situation is low, but it's lower with planned cesarean birth. And I have to be honest, I think we are at a point of no return where cesarean is going to be how most term breech babies are born is by cesarean. And that's because there's just not a lot of options for the third option. So the first option when baby is breech is external cephalic version. The second option is planned cesarean birth. And then the third option is vaginal breech birth. All right. And I just don't think that this option is going to 
happen much. It doesn't happen much, and I'm going to explain why. Now, the reality is that for appropriate patients who have characteristics that place them at low risk for any complications, vaginal breech birth is a perfectly viable option. And the study that is most often used to support vaginal breech birth is something called the PROMOTA study. It was done in France and Belgium, and it's an observational study, so not a randomized trial. So the results are less robust than the term breech trial. There were also some concerns about who was included in the study. But in this particular study, the composite outcome, and composite outcome means they just combine a lot of rare outcomes together. The composite outcomes of mortality or morbidity for babies was not significantly different for planned vaginal versus planned cesarean birth, okay? So in this particular study of the uh, 2,500 patients roughly who were in the planned vaginal birth group, most of them, 70% did deliver vaginally and 6.6% of them had an adverse outcome. And those included brachial plexus injury, skull skull fracture, genital injury, um, seizure, death in two infants. Some things that were associated with those poor outcomes were preterm delivery, a small baby, or a hospital where they didn't have a lot of births, okay? And then there have been some subsequent smaller studies that have shown a low rate of bad outcomes for planned vaginal breach birth. But the key in the PROMOTA study and all of these studies is that it really has to be strict criteria for who has a vaginal breach birth, okay? So who is considered to be low risk? And those criteria are no hyperextension of the fetal head when we look on ultrasound. And hyperextension just means that the neck is bent back, like it's extended back. And here I am again, like doing the motion, (laughs) sitting at my desk while I'm recording. But hyperextension means just like the chin is tilted up, head is tilted back. That is going to increase the chances of head entrapment. Also, we don't want to do it if the estimated weight is between 2,500 to 3,800 grams. Or I'm sorry, we want to do it only if the estimated weight is between 2,500 to 3,800 grams. So that is between five pounds, eight ounces to eight pounds, six ounces. Frank breech presentation. So where those legs are straight up, that is going to create a nice big wide surface at the bottom. If that bottom part goes through, then the head should come through just fine. Babies need to be continuously monitored during labor with electronal fetal heart rate monitoring. And then of course, significant informed consent about vaginal birth. During the labor, we avoid induction actually. So only folks who go into labor spontaneously. Some say no prior cesarean, although that's controversial. Some also say had a prior vaginal birth, although actually the data does not show that there's a difference as long as you meet those other criteria that I talked about. And then during labor, we don't break the water because breaking the water is going to increase the chances of core prolapse and then also not using any Pitocin. So essentially, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. We don't push it in order to happen. Interestingly, there were two small studies that showed that there were better outcomes, fewer interventions, a shorter pushing phase, fewer injuries to baby when mom was in an upright position or on all fours rather than on her back. So that's also an interesting observation as well. Now, the biggest thing that is required for a vaginal breech birth is someone who is comfortable doing it. It requires patience, first of all, like you can't touch the baby as the baby's being born. It's so counterintuitive to what we do. So you'll see legs coming out and literally the legs are just kind of hanging out and then you wait for mom to push, more of the baby comes out. You really don't do anything. Don't touch the baby. You just support the baby until at least you see the belly button. All right, at least you see the belly button, ideally until you get to the shoulders. You you don't do anything. You just let the baby come out. And again, that's counterintuitive to what we do. You see half of this baby kind of hanging out. And the reason that you do that is because if you pull on the baby, you increase the chances of that neck hyperextending and the head getting stuck. So you really just have to wait. And then also, so many people are just 
not trained on it, y'all. There are a not insignificant number. I don't know an exact number off my head, but just sort of anecdotally and groups that I'm in and things like that. There are plenty of OBGYNs who have never seen a vaginal breech birth, who have never done a vaginal breech birth. Okay. So that is not um, infrequent that you, you have a doctor who has no experience with it at all. Me personally, I will do a vaginal breech birth. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. Most of the time I do it with second twins. I've done it in surprise circumstances when mom comes in and baby is just coming breech. You know, we just make it happen. I would certainly be willing to do it in someone who was appropriately counseled and met all the criteria and wanted to try for a vaginal breech birth. I personally think it's an important skill to keep up. I don't want the only tool in my toolbox to be a knife. So that's why I offer it, but there's really just not a lot of opportunity to do it. Remember I said that only three to 4% of babies are breech at term. And then you further whittle that down to folks who want to try versus who don't try, don't want to try. And the baby has to be in a certain position and have all of those things. There's really just not a lot of opportunity to learn how to do breech birth. Now, some of the things that we've talked about as a possibility to, to make up for that, because there will inevitably be the surprise breech birth who shows up at your hospital is simulations. And that is certainly a way that a lot of residents in training, as you're going through your training, folks doing simulations on breech birth in order to to have that skill. But it really is difficult to have folks who are trained on it and feel comfortable on it. And I say all that to say is that you can see people or you'll see people online who talk about breech birth and they're like, well, you have a right to have a breech birth. And you do. You absolutely have a right to have a breech birth, but it's a very reasonable chance that in the U.S. you're going to be doing it with somebody who don't know what they're doing, who maybe has not ever seen it. Okay, so most people, I believe that's not a chance that they want to take, but just know that, yes, you can have your breech birth, but you could be doing it with someone who has very little to no experience doing the procedure. And I think it's just a difficult situation to go down now that we've gone down this road where so many babies who are breech are born by cesarean because there's just not much of an opportunity to learn. All right, so as far as what the um, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says about breech birth, just to wrap that up, and then I'm gonna talk about some quote-unquote alternative options for turning a breech baby Um, What the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says is that the decision regarding the mode of delivery should consider patient wishes, the experience of the healthcare provider, obstetrician gynecologist and other obstetric care providers should offer external cephalic version as an alternative to planned cesarean for, for a woman who has a term singleton breach fetus desires a planned vaginal delivery of a vertex presenting fetus and has no contraindications. It should be attempted only in settings in which cesarean delivery services are readily available. Planned vaginal delivery of a term singleton breech fetus may be reasonable under hospital-specific protocol guidelines for eligibility and labor management. If a vaginal breech delivery is planned, a detailed informed consent should be documented, including risk that perinatal or neonatal mortality or short-term serious neonatal morbidity may be higher than if a cesarean delivery is planned. Okay, so that's ACOG stance. So again, takeaway is that really you should be offered version, if not ask for it. And then most doctors are gonna be way more comfortable doing cesarean and not many know how to do a vaginal breech birth. Okay. Now, the last thing I want to end with is some quote unquote alternative options and things that you may want to try in order to turn your breech baby. And some of those include position changes and techniques. Spinning Babies has a website that has some techniques and things that you can do to try to turn your breech, your breech baby. So I definitely suggest you um, look at Spinning Babies for those um, uh, maneuvers and things. They have been quite helpful for some folks. The Webster technique, which is something that is done by a chiropractor, is also a possibility. You want to make sure it's by someone who is an experienced 
chiropractor and knows what they are doing and has, you know, comfort and um, skill and training in doing so. So the Webster technique by a chiropractor is worth a shot. Another (laughs) weird one or unusual one that I've heard is putting ice on the baby's head for 20 minutes a day for a few days can help as a stimulant to sort of get the baby to move away from. The risk of all of the, there's certainly no studies on that. Um, There's no evidence that that, that, that uh, will help, but they are certainly not, it's certainly not harmful. There's also not great evidence on the Webster technique or the spinning babies technique that I'm aware of in terms of like randomized trials or things like that. But again, those things are not likely to be harmful and they definitely help. Also moxie, I don't, I don't know if I'm saying this right. Mox, moxibustion, moxibustion, moxibustion. It is a type of Chinese medicine where an herb is burnt close to the skin of the acupuncture point bladder 67, BL67, located at the tip of the fifth toe, all right? And it has been used either alone or in combination with acupuncture in order to help turn a baby. And it's typically performed 20 to 60 minutes, once or twice per day, two to seven times per week from one to two weeks, okay? And it's pretty safe and it actually does increase the chances of turning a breech baby. It's not terribly high, but again, that's certainly something worth trying. Don't do it at home. Don't try to do it yourself. I've seen stories of people like nearly burning their toe. So (laughs) go to someone, an acupuncturist who is comfortable and experienced with doing this. Okay, last thing I want to say is that after birth, if you end up having a cesarean for a breech baby, you are a great candidate for a VBAC, okay? So if you have a cesarean, don't think that you are committed to cesarean. You are definitely a great candidate for having a VBAC or a vaginal birth after cesarean the next time around. Also, regardless of how babies are born, whether they're born vaginal or cesarean, babies who are born and they were breached in utero, in utero are more likely to have that those hip issues like I talked about, that torticollis. So they need to be examined closely after birth, okay? Some doctors will rec- recommend an ultrasound just to look at the baby's um, hips just to make sure everything is okay. Okay, so just to wrap up, about 3% of babies are breached at term, some risk factors for breach, and this is just a few, extremes of fluid, uterine abnormalities like fibroids or unicornerate uterus. If either parent was born breach, the types of breach presentation are frank breach where the legs are up by the head. That's the most common. Complete breach, which is like cannonball, and then incomplete is the rest. You may suspect that your baby is breech based on feeling a head up in the ribs where you feel kicks. Ultrasound is the way we definitively diagnose it. As far as the options for management, they have changed over time. We very rarely do vaginal breech birth anymore. Most often we either do cesarean birth or you should be offered the option of external cephalic version. Definitely bring that up to your doctor if they don't suggest it. Some things that may make external cephalic version more successful are, uh, having the tocolysis medicine in order to relax your uterus, having anesthesia, the spinal anesthetic in order to, well, actually we're not sure exactly how it, how it works. I don't know if it just relaxes your, your uterus or just makes it easier to move the baby, but having that spinal anesthesia and then the vibroacoustic stimulator, I'm looking forward to trying that as well. As for vaginal breech birth, it is an option and appropriate candidates, but know that there are not a lot of doctors who do it or have skill in it. And then the final thing that I will say is that some babies are just going to come in this world breech. Okay. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. Some babies just decide that they're going to be breached and that's just how things are. So don't blame yourself. Do what you can control the things you can control and um, know that 
ultimately, of course, you want your baby to get here as safe as possible and healthy as as possible. And it's perfectly natural and normal to be upset if your baby is breached, for sure, 100% and be disappointed. But know that some babies are just going to come into this world breach and there was nothing necessarily that you could do to change that. Okay, so there you have it. Do me a favor, share this podcast with a friend if you like it. Also subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to me right now. I'm actually gonna start releasing some bonus episodes of the podcast. And the only way that you're gonna know about them is if you subscribe. So definitely subscribe to the podcast and leave a review in Apple Podcast in particular that helps the show to grow and it helps other women find the show. And I love to hear what you think about it. Also, don't forget to check out the birth preparation course, my signature online childbirth education class that gets you calm, confident, and empowered to have the most beautiful birth. We have an amazing community there and you can get extra help from me beyond what you can get here in this podcast. That's drnicolerankins.com forward slash enroll. So that is it for this episode. Do come on back next week and remember that you deserve a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.